Welcome to another episode of Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. In the last episode, I asked you to send me your questions so that we could have a a listener question episode, Uh, and you did. I received dozens of excellent questions, and I've already put together uh, one episode. We might do two, Uh, but uh, if you want to keep sending questions in, that's fine. Uh, As they come in and accumulate, I'll, I'll put together episodes and periodically uh, sprinkle the show with uh, episodes that focus on your questions. And today I thought we would do something a little bit different. Um, most episodes focus on a particular area of research, but a question that fascinates me always is how scholars choose the topics that they research, the questions that they pose, how they go about it, and how those questions are framed within the sort of dynamics and politics of the field. And one of the really great things about research in the humanities is that it allows you to drive your own research, to choose what topics you want to work on, to determine the direction of your own work. Um, it's actually one of the great, probably the single greatest aspect of being a professor in university. But it's still an interesting question about how we choose the topics that we choose. What do we prioritize? What do we avoid? And I'm thinking here mostly of original research done by experienced scholars course there are no rules about this and there's no methodology even about this i mean there there are methodologies that kick in once you decide how you're going to frame the question what kind of evidence you're going to be using how you're going to be using it what your theoretical framework is going to be but we curiously lack a methodology for deciding on the question in the first place and it's actually not something that you're really trained for in any kind of systematic way. You know, in graduate school, you kind of form a subjective impression about what sorts of topics are interesting or have been overlooked, or you just look around, you see what other people are doing, and you think, well, I'd like to do something like that, uh, but maybe on a different topic. Anyway, you get the idea. It's not a very systematic process. Now then, once you get more experienced, you begin to acquire a broader perspective, ideally, and more research tools. And then you face a number of options uh, about what kind of research to do. And I'll give you some examples of what these might look like. So you might begin to notice that there is a very important topic that is discussed extensively in other fields, adjacent fields perhaps, but that is never discussed in your own. To give you a recent example from my research, I noticed that the topic of ethnicity was never discussed in Byzantine studies. There was almost no books or articles with ethnicity in the title, um, and even the few that did were not coming out of any modern theorization of ethnicity um, at all. And you wonder, why is that? Why, Why are ancient historians, medieval historians, early modern historians talking about ethnicity, but no one in Byzantine studies it. So that is one way to find a topic. It does require that you, that you, that you see that something is missing, which is, is hard to do if you're operating within the existing parameters and domains of a field. So another approach would be to take an existing topic, but to view it 
in a completely different way through a completely different theoretical framework. So in this way, a problem that used to be thought of as a political problem or a social problem, you might realize is actually more of a literary problem. It has something to do with the sources that are conveying the information on which all of the history is based. Or you can take an issue that has traditionally been discussed as a theological religious problem and, as we'll see in this episode, sort of flip it around and see it more as a question of cultural anthropology. So that's a second kind of broad approach. A third one is something I might call uh, fact-checking or, or footnote-checking, and that is you realize that everybody in the field keeps repeating the same thing over and over again, uh, maybe about a very specific factual matter, who did what, and you realize that they're all doing it in the same language, like they're recycling the same terms, the same expressions, the same formulas, which for me at least is a giveaway that they are not, that my colleagues are not processing through their own mind. That this is some sort of meme out there or something that we all think that we know is true and we're just kind of recycling it because it's, it's out there. And Every once in a while, it's good to go back and to subject those things to critical scrutiny and see just how much weight they can bear. That is, what is it all based on? And very often, you find you, you going further and further back as you're, as you're jumping from footnote to footnote to footnote. And sometimes you might find, well, wait, this is not actually based on any sound source material, or it's based on an argument that was made a very long time ago, and it's a very weak argument, and yet it's just kind of been recycled um, and has just become, has acquired the status of an established truce, even though it can't bear the weight that's put on it. My guest today is Tia Kolbaba, a professor in the Department of Religion of Rutgers University. And she, I thought she would be an ideal person to have this conversation with because she does all of these things and she does them very, very well. And she is refreshingly candid and open about where she's seeing problems and how she's seeing them and what she's proposing to do with them and about the, the kinds of roadblocks that you encounter in trying to solve these problems, both when it comes to the nitty-gritty of the text and when it comes to the broad theoretical um, concepts that we bring to their analysis. Now, I hope to have more conversations with Tia about the specific topics of her research. In particular, she's, she's working on on heresies and specifically heresiology in Byzantium, that is how the Byzantines created taxonomies of heresy and you know, classified people in different little boxes. But, but I thought it would be very interesting to have a discussion with her about how we find our research topics or how they find us and how they mutate as we begin to uh, get involved with them and, you know, fact check what we thought we knew and try to see things that we thought we knew from a different perspective that makes them look quite different and in her case always very interesting. So here then is my conversation with Tia Kolbaba. Hello Tia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, it's great to be here. So before we get to the questions about like how we do our scholarly research, 
can you just tell us a little bit about your own work, just so that uh, the listeners know what sorts of things you've been looking for? Sure. Um, I work on religion in Byzantium, and especially on how uh, East Roman Christians defined themselves and understood their faith and piety, in, especially in contrast to other varieties of Christianity. So um, it, it, it sounds really simplistic, but in many ways this goes back to when I was an undergraduate first reading about Byzantium, and I read about people rioting in the streets in 1274 against union of their church with the Catholic Church. Um, and the two kinds of Christianity looked pretty similar to me. Um, so the idea that people would riot against the sort of union with people they agreed on 99% of Christian doctrine with, especially since that Christian doctrine has some pretty wacky ideas, um, that inspired me. So that's, um, you know, 35 years or so later, <laughs> I've written yeah. a lot about Latin and Greek Christians, and that question's been, you know, nuanced. But I think in many ways it's still at the heart of what I do. And then somewhere along the line, and maybe we'll get to this later, um, I switched to being interested in what Byzantines have to say about all heretics, not not just what they have to say about whether Latins are heretics. And right. so currently, currently I'm working on what I hope is sort of an overview and introduction to Byzantine anti-heretical material in general over, over a long stretch of time, probably 9th to 12th centuries. Uh, yeah, well, so, I, I really look forward to that. We can, we can talk about that book when it comes out. Um, Actually, around the same time, I remember some riots uh, in Athens uh, when the uh, the Last Temptation of Christ was screened. Mm -hmm. at, yes, and there were monks and priests uh, and yeah. you know lay people who were riding in the streets. They were setting the the dumpster bins on fire. Uh, anyway, <laughs> different. Uh, well, there. Were, I mean, th there were people. Uh, there were monasteries on Mount Athos too, I believe, that flew black mourning flags when the Pope visited Greece uh, a few was, years yes, ago. There was one. Yes, um, yes, that the Pope would set foot on Greek soil was um, cause for great consternation. So yeah. it's it's not all dead. <laughs> also, brave on the part of the Pope to set foot on Greek soil, given what happened the last times they did. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, okay. Um, so, so I've, uh, I've, I've always admired your work. Um, I think it was ever since John Fine pushed your book across the table at the, the bar where he would meet us, uh, his grad students. <laughs> John Fine had my book in a bar. That's worth remembering. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and I was what's this? And he said, well, you should read it. Um, anyway, and I admire it because you're looking at some questions uh, that have been really w been worked over by a lot of people for hundreds of years. In fact, since those events happened, they have been yeah. in continual play, right? Um, and yet, you you look at them with a completely new way and fresh eyes and draw conclusions from them. Not just different conclusions, conclusions that people weren't even looking for, right? So that's what that's what I like. That's what I like about your book and why I thought of you for this for this question. So. Um, what do you take the goal of scholarly research to be? That is, why are we doing all of this? What sorts of things do you, do you like, criteria do you set for that is a successful piece of scholarship? Mm -hmm. um, well, for myself, I mean, there are, obviously there are lots of different kinds of successful scholarship. But for me, I think if I hadn't become a Byzantinist, which is a pretty weird choice after all, um, I probably would have been a cultural anthropologist. Um, I'm, I'm really 
interested in you know the world needs engineers and doctors and 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 farmers but i think it also needs people who understand other cultures and other ways of thinking different from their own and it takes immense intellectual effort to do that and education so i so my biggest sort of maybe most grandiose goal has always been to understand people whose worldview differs from mine in fundamental ways um, without judging necessarily and and then to communicate that to teach students that because I think it's it, you know I, I grew up in a very white bread rural Washington state town you know I didn't know anybody who was different from me until I went to college and I think it's so hugely important that that is very much part of my teaching so then you and I of course happen to have specifically medieval Romans as our subject, which is a, is another choice. And I think um, there are two things there. I, I did that because I was just fascinated by Byzantium the first time I read about it. So, you know, there I don't know what the mystery is to that, but it's there. But I think also um, it's in many ways, I trust myself more to be as close to objective as I can be about looking at a culture that is that distant from my own. Um, I'm, I, I may be a little bit too opinionated and too much involved in, and aware of politics to understand right-wing Americans and, and understand their worldview without judging it. <laughs> but I feel like with Byzantium, I, I, I have a chance at, at getting some kind of grasp of a really different way of thinking. Well, that is interesting. So just the, the appreciation of cultural difference, you feel that it drives your your scholarship. That is, if you if you see a sort of cultural scene that at first sight seems very different and in a, you know, inaccessible and weird, that that's a challenge for you to sort of get in, under its skin and kind of figure out how it works. Absolutely. I think that's, um, you know, I have one huge assumption about, um, about Byzantines in the Middle Ages that I was taught to some extent also in, in, in a medieval studies program when I was in graduate school about crusaders and Western medieval people, right? That that they aren't stupider or more superstitious or more venal or greedier than we are <laughs> on average, right? That Of course, there are stupid and venal and greedy Byzantines. Sure, sure. Um, but, but that... Um, if I'm really profoundly, you know, like there's a whole set of texts that like lists of Latin errors that are incomprehensible to me without making the assumption that they are somehow, you know, awful people, then yeah, that's what gets me going. It's like, okay, how can I understand these texts? How can I understand the culture behind these texts in a way that makes me see how these people could think this way? Right. Okay, I, I, that is, it's a somewhat different approach than, than what I have. I, I don't think I'm personally driven so much by um, an interest in cultural difference as such. I mean, I am because I, I read widely, like, you know, you tell me about Aztecs and yeah, I want to figure out what that was all about, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not what drives my scholarship. I'm, I'm, I, I'd say that I'm more, um, more into kind of, of a problem solving um, just as a kind of intellectual challenge. Mm -hmm. And when I see a situation that, for which I, I feel we don't have um, adequate models, I, I just, mm -hmm. I'm just attracted to the challenge of devising a model that fills the gaps or solves the problems that mm -hmm. I see in the existing ones. Yeah. Um, to different, yeah, yeah. I think, I think in some ways too, you know, what I often see in your work is that, um, 
you you're reading a, a wider range of material than, than than I'm usually reading, especially in the original language, and that you are very good at picking up on where the modern scholarly language about about what Byzantines are saying. So when when scholars are saying this is what Byzantines say, does not in fact match up with what the Byzantines say. Yeah, yeah. That I, you're that you're very very good at that. And then I think yeah, then you go on to find a way to explain both what the Byzantines are saying and why we've, you know, why there's been that mistake. Yeah, I wanted to get to that. Like how how we how we identify well, let, let's turn to that right now. So, like, how we identify research topics, um, because so, I, I, again, going back to John Fine, and this is what I learned from him. You know, I was with him for almost ten years at Michigan. That scholarship is to solve problems at, or to make original contributions, right? So either mm-hmm. either to knowledge, just facts, you know, dates, publishing mm-hmm. texts, yeah. whatever, or to our understanding of things. Uh, but mm-hmm. but it has to be original in some way, because um, obviously you know I mean we let's not kid ourselves. There's a lot of scholarship that's very repetitive and it recycles everything, and we we end up reading the same things over and over and over and over again, you know, right? Which is how we can read books in our field so quickly because like at least fifty percent of it we already know we've mm-hmm. read before. Yeah, yeah. So how how do we identify a research topic that that contributes to those kinds of goals, the enhancing understanding or just presenting new knowledge and I'm asking this either from your own experience or like if you have any advice for people who are listening and who are looking for topics like what what are they looking for? Yeah, it's that's a really tough one because when I think about how um how I have found the topics I've found there's always a lot of the if if I don't like totally make it into a very rational narrative that's not true <laughs> then and there's always a lot of serendipity. I do think, um, I think almost all of us start with a big, with big, broad questions or big, broad interests. And then I go looking for Byzantine sources that seem to play a role in, in that issue. So if I'm interested in how Byzantine Orthodox Christians define themselves, I go looking for the sources. And then when I find a source or a set of sources, I just, I start reading them and I set out to understand them as thoroughly as I can understand them. And yes, I do try to find ones that maybe haven't been worked to death. But on the other hand, I mean, you wrote a very good article on Carol Arius and Humbert in 1054. And it's, you know, it's been done and it's been done, but going back to those primary sources. Um, so, so it's always for me, this sort of, I start from my broad interest, but I try to find that set of texts. Um, that's one kind of project. The, the other thing is there are other pro- the, other times there are projects like when I wrote an article on on holy war and just war in Byzantium, where it's just frankly I've read there are a whole bunch of primary sources that I've read for various things, and I keep reading secondary sources that just don't match. Exactly. And and I reach the point where it's just like I got to write something about this because I just don't you know I got to say what I got to say. Um, so yeah, I mean, I go. Secondary sources usually point me toward where some primary sources are, and then I go read the primary sources. That's my Toronto training too, I think. But yeah, <laughs> so I I think that this movement can go in either direction, and I think you've hit on both of the options there. So, for example, so if you're uh, an, an experienced scholar, um, or 
and you read a lot of primary sources and we should be doing, I'm like, I'm, I'm just going to make that clear that people in our line of work should be reading sources all the time, right? And often, and I, and I, I did this from the beginning, even as a, I started as an undergrad, just reading sources, not looking for a particular theme that interested me, but in order to see what is in them. Yeah. And, yeah. and over time, you just develop a body of knowledge that you can draw on when that theme becomes interesting to you down the road. Um, anyway, so one is to sort of command a body of primary sources, and then you start seeing things in them that perhaps aren't represented in the scholarship. Yes. Right. Or what you just said, that is, you, you see that the scholarship is kind of askew to what you've read in the sources or how you interpret mm -hmm. them, and you, you have to yeah. make an intervention. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So one is the intervention. The, the other kind um, of result that I found was, like when I wrote the book on the Parthenon, which is like, everybody kept saying that there's nothing going on in Byzantine Athens. There's nothing going on. There's nothing going on. There's nothing go And I just kept finding materials about things going on. <laughs> <laughs> until yeah. yeah at first I thought oh this is an article I'm just gonna point out well no there's some things going on and eventually there's mm -hmm. just so much that anyway yeah 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 I think um, you know one of the hardest things for um, for students often when they're for you know the undergraduate research paper or the graduate students first writing a paper it is to to convince them that no, really, if you read this set of sources and read them carefully, you'll get a paper topic out of it. <laughs> it'll it'll come, right? Yeah. Um, they always think that they have to read much more. Like, oh my God, I can't possibly get anything out of you know this twenty-page source. And and I think it is partly that that as you as you get more and more immersed in the field, as you go on and on, you are going to see more paper topics in that source <laughs> you're you're you know of course you are you're going to have that that weight of experience so i think it's very scary sometimes for students who are starting into a, a dissertation or a preliminary paper that might lead to a dissertation to be confident that you know it's okay to just immerse myself in these primary sources um but it's i always tell them it's there. It's there. There will be something you don't understand there, <laughs> something that just doesn't, that needs explanation, and there will be a paper in that. Right. And there's also the approach that you mentioned um, that when you began to answer the previous question, which was that you you have a training in, in certain methodologies, and you had mentioned cult cultural anthropology, mm -hmm. and that is an approach to uh, a historical situation that has perhaps never been tried in this particular area. And, and this is w what you did. Um, so right now, it would not strike me as particularly novel, having read your works, to think that um, Eastern Orthodox and you know medieval Catholic uh, cultural interaction can be studied through the lens of cultural anthropology because these <laughs> right. are two cultures and they're having these interactions. Yeah. But when you started to do that, they didn't exist. Right, I don't think so. No, I think um, in in late antiquity they were ahead sure, of us. Sure, sure, yeah. Right, yeah. and so that helped. Um, I was a great admirer of Peter Brown from like you know undergraduate on, um, and then of course um, not when I was writing the dissertation, but at the time that I was turning the dissertation into the book. And and the book, the Byzantine List book, is really very different from my dissertation. I was actually at Princeton, <laughs> so Peter read my manuscript and seeded it with post-it notes and so yeah i mean there were people but it's true not not for um not for byzantine orthodoxy you know after iconoclasm say 
which I think is really a very different animal from yes from before. I mean, I think before the I I still think for religion at least the Islamic invasions are a big big thing, and I think the Council in Trullo in you know six ninety six ninety one shows us uh, you know a shrunken a, a church that's turned inward a lot more and you know very different from the late antique church yeah. and from the late antique religious diversity of the empire um so so yeah i mean the, the late antiquists were doing it but um you know i can't claim that i had some sort of brilliant breakthrough it's just i'd always been very interested in reading cultural anthropology and i'm very interested in byzantium um yeah and and when I started seeing things like accusations in the Byzantine in, – in these lists of Latin errors about the, all the things Latins eat, you know, I, yeah, <laughs> it was yeah. like – I had not expected that. You know, obviously you expect them to complain about the Latin addition to the creed and about the Latin use of unleavened bread in the Eucharist. You know, you, you know what the, what the big things are. But when you start hitting, you know, unclean food and um, – I don't know. There were just a number of those things that that the other one that was a revelation for me at the time that now seems so basic was just these liturgical complaints are real because the liturgy is really that important. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, these aren't minor picky things. These are um, and I'd been taught that about doctrine. You know, don't say, oh, this is just, you know, a theology when people are rioting about it in Alexandria, you know, it must be important. Um, but I hadn't been taught that about ritual and liturgy. <laughs> and uh... um, in a way, once you say it, you know, any any Greek Orthodox person looks at you and goes, well, of course, orthopraxy is important. <laughs> of course, it's right that, you, you know, important that you get the liturgy right. But I was raised a Protestant in, you know, rural right. Washington state. This was like. That was yeah, kind of yeah, news yeah. to me. And those Catholics are eating uh, eating bears and dolphins, right? Isn't that? <laughs> oh, bears and dolphins and snakes and beavers. Yeah, that's dormice. Not... I, I like I like mice. Mice. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's not right. Jackals, carrion birds. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's it, the lists get very long eventually. Um, yeah. Yeah. So one of the differences between these kinds of approaches in late antiquity and in the areas that you study uh, primarily is that the debates. The, the cultural interactions or disputes or whatever an anxieties that were happening in late antiquity aren't still going on, really. So pagans and Christians, you know, this no. this sort of thing. So it's a much safer environment in which to practice that kind of scholarship, whereas the area that you're in, that's still alive. And that's another major difference. And mm -hmm. there there are there are like exponents and you know of, on on either side and they're they're continuing this discussion in, in in ways that stretch back to the i don't know 11th 9th century whatever and so it's a it's a very very different terrain and and mm -hmm. and i imagine you as kind of working through a minefield carefully right um <laughs> yeah so, if i'd known how much of a minefield i might not have done it but yes yeah so let, let me ask i mean did, have you encountered forbidden topics, like areas of research where you were kind of told, you know, directly or indirectly, don't go there, that's not, you know, you shouldn't get involved in that? I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure I've encountered forbidden, but I, I certainly have um, offended people and been the target of, um, a lot often of sort of explanation. Um from often 
Orthodox people uh, about how what what I'm doing is you know wrong and why it's wrong. Uh, because I mean the big thing I say that is offensive to a lot of people is that I don't believe in heresy and orthodoxy as anything but constructs. Um, you know, I think theological the theological positions that became orthodox doctrine were the results of political trading and horse, you know, political horse trading and yeah, compromise. Sure. <laughs> um, and all of this, again, like through the end of the, the sixth ecumenical count, you know, through the seventh century, um, that's the way that church historians are working on this material now. And they're more and more realizing that um, the orthodox historians have routinely distorted the truth and um, slandered their opponents and, and so on. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I can, I could go on and on, but I'll, I'll I'll just stick to your question and say yes. I I have offended people. I have wandered into minefields. Um, I, I I'll never forget. I I it gave a paper at one point at, at the Dumbarton Oaks Spring Symposium, and um, a senior scholar who shall remain nameless, you know, I gave a whole paper on how the Latin addition to the creed had not always been the most important issue for the for the Byzantines, and in fact. Um, uh, Unleavened bread in the Eucharist was far more important for a very long time, and you know this this scholar stood up and and faced me and said I was still a very young scholar and said well you know I just have to explain to you Tia that that the procession of the Holy Spirit has always been the most important issue, and I just you know made given a forty five minute paper in which I showed that it wasn't. Um, fortunately, Father Robert Taft got up and said that's exactly the kind of nonsense we don't. <laughs> Right, right, right. A senior scholar, so I was defended by another senior scholar. But um, yeah, it's it's there. Um, I think anybody who works on history of Christianity, you know, in, unless they're siloing themselves in their liberal scholarship silo, yeah, <laughs> where yeah. everybody agrees with them, um, you're, you're going to have some of that. So okay. Um, hey, n- next you can work on the the Slavic settlements in Greece. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Yeah. yeah. I, though I have to say that on, on both of those kinds of questions, I think that so the general climate in our field has changed so that I, I'm now kind of struck when I read scholarship from even the 80s and 90s where the term orthodox is used non-perspectively, just Absolutely. straight up. Th- yeah. th- this was an orthodox emperor and this was a non-orthodox yeah, and it strikes me as so odd now because I don't think we do that anymore. Mm-mm. No, no. It's yeah. like, um, you know, I, I was just discussing with another uh, colleague of ours, Lynn Jones. You know, it's an art historian. She's working on a on a book on Constantine um, and images of Constantine, and we were laughing about, you know, if Constantine was baptized on his deathbed, as Eusebius tells us he was, he was baptized by an Arian, quote unquote. <laughs> bishop so there are all kinds of problems with with this that yeah at 20 years ago certainly 50 years ago yeah nobody was dealing with it was just oh constantine was baptized on his deathbed well you know <laughs> um that that had its own set of questions around it but you know it, it's it's all the religious landscape is all a little bit more complicated than that yeah and yeah. i think so have you developed any kinds of instincts or intuitions for identifying um, an area that needs sort of urgent attention? Kind of like ambulance chasing, like um, <laughs> like what what tells you that there's an ambulance heading down the street and you need to follow it to see what kind of accident took place? I, like I, I have some 
I mean, I can yeah, tell you, um, like, for example, I my alarms go off when I see a lot of scholars referring to the same thing in the same kind of language, and it becomes apparent to me that they're recycling a formula mm-hmm. that they clearly learned from somewhere. But when you're using the same words as everyone else, for me, that implies that you haven't exactly internalized and processed that you haven't built that idea up on your own. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that yeah. Th- that there might be some like a, a virus here, right? Like, a, no, not to. Yeah. Anyway. No, I, you know, that, there is. There's a. Yeah. So, so I'll give you one, one example. Like I kept reading that borders of the state, state borders in like Byzantium or whatever, are always, quote, fluid zones of interaction. And like, I don't have a problem with that formulation as such, because I think all places are fluid zones of interaction, but it kept getting re- attached to borders specifically over and over and over and over again without any documentation or anything. And, and at some point, I, when I see that enough, I think, oh, I got to find out what's going on here, because this is a formula. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's not processed yeah. through the individual mind of of each scholar based on original research. Right. So that's just yeah. one instinct that I have. Do you, do you have any? I have a few. I mean, what one is? Um, I'm always suspicious of of binary oppositions. <laughs> right. As soon as somebody tells me um, this is this and it is not that, and I can you know show very clearly um you know one of the ones that i run into with a lot of the sort of you know characters i work on who are are ecclesiastical figures is like he was doing what the emperor wanted or he was a genuinely pious and religious person you know so when i hear those kinds of binary oppositions i think i get um i get antsy um there's something about me that always just wants to undermine them (laughs) wants to show that it's not that simple um i agree with you totally on the when there is a a a catchphrase or it's just coming up everywhere and so one of the things i've actually one of the sort of soul searchings myself that i've been doing lately is uh uh-oh the inventing thing has gotten really big So, yes, I called my second book Inventing Latin Heretics, and I think Leslie Brubaker's book on inventing iconoclasm is really very, very good. But maybe we need to, like, pull back a little bit here because there's a lot of this sort of, you know, maybe some some things aren't necessarily being completely constructed and, and, you know, invented. Construction is another one. We all talk – I talk all the time about construction. Of, of categories and so on. So I think it's a good, I think you're right. It's a good, it's not that that inventing or constructing or whatever is wrong. I think in fact, it's very right in a lot of cases, but when when it's just being sort of spouted as, you know, a truism. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things I, you know, I, I have a friend who, from graduate school, um, now a very illustrious medievalist, but he, he at one point in graduate school said, I think I don't think I'm going to read any more articles that have hyphens. <laughs> you know? And there are just, there are the things like that. So I think that right now, yeah, inventing, constructing, we need to be careful. Um, yeah, there are a lot of books uh, whose titles begin with that, like making, inventing, constructing, and, and so yeah, forth. I, and I, I, I mean, it was an entirely good thing right for our fields to go through a phase where we see these things in, in, in that way 
Uh, but you're right, it can be taken too far and it can become a kind of uh, sort of knee-jerk reaction to anything that we see. Um, but it takes experience to see, to, to um, ascertain whether it's gone too far in some particular case. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah, it's, I don't think that it's immediately apparent to more, either more junior scholars or, or grad students because when they're mm-hmm. exposed to such an approach the first time, they're kind of blown away by the intellectual potential. Yeah, now, the field's been tapping that potential for decades, but <laughs> yeah. they don't necessarily know that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So definitely that's that's one way to spot, um, you know, where certain theories have perhaps run ahead of the uh, evidentiary basis for them or just even sometimes common sense. Um, but another is also, yeah. <laughs> was that? No, no, I just laughed. <clears throat> Um, the common so, sense. I, I, I agree. Sometimes it's just that's what's needed. It's just a little bit of reality injected. Um, yeah. And, and so especially when you see that there's a, a a lot of people are working on different topics through the same lens. I also start to wonder whether there's some other approach that is being neglected because of the mm-hmm. emphasis on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a whole lot of things like, I mean, cultural anthropology is, is one thing. And by the way, for all the work that's been done on Byzantine orthodoxy, I think there's so much more that needs to be done on like Byzantine religion through an anthropological lens. So much oh, more. Oh man, <laughs> and, I mean the the big one for me is um, because I, I I can't do it, but I can see how amazing it would be is um, an, a, a, a you know religious studies if you like approach to the rituals of the Byzantine Church. Yeah, and I think you know the problem is. The religious studies people who work on ritual are not going to go learn everything they need to learn about the Byzantine liturgy. liturgy. And the Byzantine liturgists tend to be orthodox people who are, you know, usually orthodox men, often orthodox priests who are interested in, you know, getting the liturgy right (laughs) and ecumenical dialogue with other liturgies. And, um, you know, the the big alien outsider in the field was Father Robert Taft, who is after was after all a Jesuit. So, I mean, that's how far you get. So. So, yes, there there's a lot of room for. um, Those kinds of, you know, secular is not quite the right word, but, you know, sort of outsider um, approaches to Byzantine religious ritual and fasting and rules and all of those things. Yeah, and also just what I might call like vernacular religious behavior. Um, sure. Right? Like daily life kind of things. Um, so basically a kind of social cultural history of Byzantine religion. Like I don't think we have something like that. There are little bits here and there, but it's just so weird. No, it's true. It's true. I mean, at one point, I did a lot of reading of um, some of the the people who work on early modern and modern Greece anthropologically. So, um, oh god, of course, I'm not going to be able to come up with names and titles because I wasn't thinking about this recently. But um, there are several people who have written about things, um, religious practices in the Greek mountains in yeah. the 1980s. You know, Funerals, sometimes these kinds but, of things, but real ethnographic research. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then some of the some that go back a bit further to, to to you know to use early modern evidence or you know there were all these Jesuits who traveled through Greece in the 16th and 17th centuries and complained about what the peasants were doing, um, but yeah, it's um, there's a lot there. There's a lot to <laughs> there's you know I I could lay out a couple dissertation topics. <laughs> oh sure, <laughs> but, especially if you compare it to like the study of ancient religion. Mm-hmm. 
which like does that routinely like that's what they do um and you know their main problems are how to correlate things like mythology with social practice or religion like how do those yeah. two things actually and i'm not even sure that the question has been posed in in for byzantium but uh, mm, yeah no and 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 also that question of you know what in what sense do we call this religion i mean it, you know yeah sure byzantines do, you know use uh Trischia and um Evsevia, you know it's words that should be translated something like you know rites and or sacrifice even often um and and piety um so yes the the ancient historians have you know again for 30 years now have been wrestling with this whole maybe we should not even use the word religion yeah um and you know medieval christians are also still in that world that's very their their ideas are very different you know our idea that there are lots of religions for example <laughs> is not their idea there's one right religion and then there's everything else which comes from the devil <laughs> right it's a very yeah there's a lot there's a lot that yeah we're we're still absorbed so there's another there's another trope that i sometimes notice and this is when uh, an approach to a question presents itself as new and innovative as opposed to <laughs> some quote traditional or orthodox to use it in a in a scholarly sense mm. right there's mm. this, this dominant idea there's this orthodox idea but this is something new and in fact that that has been going on in the same terms for about a century in the field like no one yeah. has held that dominant view in a century yeah um I, i'll give you an example from your area which is the the schism of 1054 mm-hmm and I just keep reading, like in in the twenty first century, that well, the schism of ten twenty four was not what caused the rupture between the two churches because, yeah. like, there's there are still articles being published, um, and I won't name names, but there was one just a few years ago, um, though again I've been I, I've been out of graduate school so long now maybe it was more than a few, but it, it was late anyway. Yes, that that. That a fairly reputable journal published an article that that was the thesis. You know, the 1054, the schism of 1054 was not very important, and it was like, well, there's Bernard Leib <laughs> writing in, in what the 1920s already established that pretty clearly. Yeah, I mean, there there are there are those things. Um, yeah, even, I, I, even Runciman is pretty clear about it. Oh yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 very you know. People have been saying you're right for probably almost a hundred years, maybe a hundred years. If you live, yeah. Um, that uh, that you know, Fourth Crusade is <laughs> is 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 a rather more traumatic event. Right. You know that, and you know, it, yeah, it's true. Um, I don't know how to. Sometimes I I get, and it's really frustrating. It's it's frustrating partly that we I mean I guess the one way that I understand why journals are still publishing things like that and why people are still writing them is because if you're teaching say western civ or medieval history you're still teaching with a textbook that emphasizes the schism of 1054 right. there's like an 80% chance 
Yeah. No, yeah. you're right. So, yes, I am famous at the Byzantine Studies Conference for some poor graduate student says, and this was because of the schism of 1054 and everybody <laughs> in the audience waits for my head to explode. And I stand up and they're graduate students, so I'm kind, but it's like nothing happened in 1054. Okay? The middle of the 11th century, something is going on. You know, like there, you know, we've got Psellos in the middle of the 11th century. We got, there's weird stuff going on. There are changes going on in Byzantine society, mm. but they're not, they have nothing to do with Humbert of No, Silver no, Candy. no. They, yeah, no, they didn't notice him. Um, uh, you know, another example of this phenomenon, and this one is really fascinating. So, you know how we now have this field called medieval Mediterranean? Yes. And it's all about, like, explicitly, it's all about interaction. And primarily, you know, between Christians and Muslims or Jews, it's always like that, right? And 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 this is constantly presented as some new, innovative, even postmodern. Like we're studying interaction between Christians and Muslims, or Christians and Jews, or whatever. And this is going to change it. So we're not looking at the history of the medieval Mediterranean in terms of conflict and opposition only, like crusade kind of paradigms right and, and I, I heard a, a lecture by a, a professor I don't remember his name now this was years ago um, he was um, Tunisian um, and he showed that that model of interaction not conflict it dates back to the mid-19th century and was created largely by French scholars to justify French expansion into North Africa Mm-hmm. And that it had continued straight since then. This model of, no, we're studying medieval Mediterranean interaction mm-hmm. without a break. All the while dr- dragging with it this idea that it's an innovative new model that is <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, it's, uh, you know, it one of the... It, it's, it's not quite the same thing, but it's related. Because one of the things that, that gets me going often is that um western medievalists so often and and i can say this because some of my best friends are western medievalists, <laughs> including, my, including my husband and i went through you know a medieval studies program at the university of toronto so it really is true that a lot of my best friends are are western medievalists but the 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 regularity with which I'm told, well, I'd like to learn about, you know, X or Y and how it worked in Byzantium, but the Byzantine stuff is so inaccessible. Oh, yeah. And um, I, I was once at a, at a workshop, a bunch of us were doing a volume together, and people had been assigned things like liturgy, and, um, you know, they're supposed to be doing this sort of, like, a period of time, the history of the liturgy, the history of monasticism, and the 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 person who was doing the history of monasticism said in his paper, you know, well, I didn't really do anything with Byzantine monasticism because it's so different and the, and the materials are so inaccessible. And the person who was doing liturgy said, I didn't really do anything on liturgy. Rosemary Morris was sitting in the audience, you know, a woman who has spent her career writing about Byzantine monasticism in ways that are pretty accessible. Very accessible, <laughs> yes. So, you know, I, 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 there's also that, this sort of perception that we're like, that somehow Byzantinists are, you know, um, we're all philologists or something, and and um, we're not even the good kind of philologists who at least are translating. And I mean, obviously, you know, that's not true. But just this, um, 
Yeah, and that's how they've missed that. For example, Byzantinists have always been working on relations that aren't all about conflict. <laughs> yeah, but um, no, and and I think yeah. that's that's part of a sort of structural dynamic in the relationship between the two fields, and it's very deeply ingrained. The idea that for there to be dialogue, the Byzantinist has to become familiar with medieval material so that there can be a common ground, but not the other way around. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I know Byzantinists who know almost nothing about Western medieval Europe, but they don't blame it on the Western medievalists. Right, right, right. <laughs> Have you ever gone looking for one thing and found another? <laughs> uh, it's the story of my life. <laughs> I'm, very, I'm very, very bad about going down rabbit holes, getting really interested in something that was just supposed to be preliminary. Um, but yeah, I mean, the major one is that my second book, the one with inventing in the title, um, is on the ninth century, on, on Byzantine Latin, what Byzantines had to say about Latins in the ninth century. And I went back to that because I, you know, I'd done a lot of reading in 11th and 12th century stuff. And I, and I was convinced that, that something, you know, Byzantines are more aware in the 12th century of developments in Latin theological um, understanding and method. Than, than we think then then is again the secondary sources are generally you know Byzantium has got a wall up and it doesn't accept anything that's not traditional and so I was seeing this stuff in the 12th century sources and I thought well if, but before I can write I, I was actually at the Institute for Advanced Study had a year to write this book on the 12th century and I said to myself well you at least have to go back and make sure that you know the changes you're seeing from the 11th to the 12th maybe you know they were there in the 10th or the 9th you got to go back but I thought all of those, especially Photius, right? The, the texts of the right. patriarch Photius, come on, they've all been edited and translated and worked over. And so I, but I needed to read them for myself um, to do like a preliminary chapter on, you know, what it was like in the ninth century. And that grew into a book because I decided that the, you know, the mystagogia of Photius is supposedly his major anti-filioque, um, you know, against the Latin addition to the creed. Um, work I don't think is a single work. <laughs> I don't think it's all by Photius. Um, and you know, before I, then I realized, well, there's Nikitas Byzantios who also writes against the Latins in the ninth century. And you know, yeah, before I knew it, I was approaching editors with a book <laughs> on Byzantine anti-Latin material in the ninth century. Yeah. So you sometimes go into a topic um, thinking that you have some kind of solid base. You know, the scholarship has prepared you for it's for the foundations and you go Focious, in. for goodness sake. Yeah. And <laughs> you start checking everyone's footnotes, for example, mm -hmm. and you they just don't pan out a lot of times. And and you you find that, that there are all these house of cards that have been built and that was the foundation on, on which you were going to write. And you, you have to, uh, that, that happens. And I remember when I was reading your book, because I had, you know, I had read what the Byzantinist needs to know about Photius. And I was reading your book and I was what? <laughs> this stuff is not, yeah, no, it's not. It's the, not stable. I, well, yeah. And that's, you know, I, I have this constant fight with myself because it, it would actually be fairly easy for me to retreat into those textual puzzles and spend the rest of my life publishing a lot yeah yeah <laughs> just solving those textual puzzles which is, you know i'm not saying that that is not useful but i'm not sh sure well it's not what i want <laughs> it's not what i want to do 
entirely. But I have to say, I, I, I'm actually thinking about dedicating my current book to, you know, Jean d'Arouzès and um, Venance Grumel and, you know, these Assumptionist Fathers who mm. ha- published edition after edition after edition of these anti-heretical texts. Um, oh, Guillard, who published the Synodicon of Orthodoxy. Um, you know, these these amazing editions. Because um, I think a lot of our texts are a lot less stable than than we think they are. And, uh, you know, the Mystagogia is a great example. I just don't... I, I don't see it as one text. And I... And, and, and since anti-heretical material later, later than the ninth century, is always a compilation. Or look at Peter of Sicily on the Paulicians. It's not one text. So, yeah. No, oh, well. no, you're right. So, <laughs> just, just, just for the... Um benefit of our audience here. So there are a number oh, yes. of texts that, <laughs> like, um, I think pro- probably the worst case is um, Moscus's Limonadion, the spiritual meadow. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's some texts that, mm, let's say that while we may have editions of them that purport to be, this is the text that the author wrote, they're not. They are, this text either underwent many, many, many changes, existed in many, many versions over the centuries. We don't have a manuscript that's close to the author. We have a bunch of different versions. And so we have to decide what's closer, what's a later, you know, and, and mm-hmm. sometimes we just can't access the original. We just can't reconstruct it with confidence. And then it just breaks down into, well, we have all these different versions and they come from, you know, they re- represent different interests, different times. Um, that's much more difficult to work with. We we like to have solid, reliable texts so much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we. I mean, it's it's important. I mean, they, it, 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 you know, at least in the case of Photius, for example, we have an 11th century manuscript of this text. So we're not, you know, we're not 300, 400 years. Right. Um, but that 11th century ma- manuscript doesn't attribute it to Photius. So these are the kinds of things that we run into, right? It's it's like we, there are all of these, you know, quagmires of. I mean, it is you can write about the 11th century on the basis of an 11th century manuscript. Like this is what somebody could have read in the 11th century. But um, yeah, to get back to you know what did Photius really write is is a very difficult question. Yeah, and it's. It's this lurking danger that we all face because we talked earlier about um, working, you know, from the sources and how important it is to keep a primary source check on all of our secondary source fantasies, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, I get this like sense of vertigo when I find my primary sources dissolving <laughs> before my very eyes. <laughs> I know, and you know, there's a lot of not. Um... You know, for example, people keep writing about Ephemios Vigavenos, who wrote this comp- this catalog of all yeah. of the heresies of of ever and ever and ever in the you know late eleventh, early twelfth. You know, it's a, it's an early Comnenian document, and we don't. I don't think anybody has done the manuscript yet work yet. Um, it, it's still very difficult to to figure out 
for me, like for me to figure out, I think there are people who know, but, but what I really want is would somebody just hand me one manuscript of Zygavenos that I know somebody read at some point, because I think every version of it is different from every other version. And so, yeah, but I mean, but I understand I want to write about, I'm going to write about him in this book I have, but I know it's going to take me a couple months using what is edited and so on to try to figure out whether I can figure out what, what's a, yeah, yeah. What's late 11th century and what's late 12th century? Because it was used. It was like a textbook. This is right, how you identify right. heretics. Yeah, and another case that's re- recently sort of bothered me. So, so do you know the parastasis syndromes chroniques, mm. right? <laughs> yes, yeah. Right, so this is a, a possibly 8th century collection of notes about statues and monuments in Constantinople with a lot of very col- colorful, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we've all been treating it as a text that was written at that time. Um, and the question was, at what time? But it turns out, I don't know, have you read um, Paolo Dorico's uh, article on this? It, no. It's not a text, really. If you look at the manuscript, um, it's a series of notes put together. That, like, it's almost like a, well, I don't want to misrepresent his thesis because it's a little tricky. But it's basically a series of notes from different other sources attributed to different people that Prager, the modern editor, a hundred years ago, mm. hundreds of years ago, just bundled together and gave it a title, and all of a sudden it's looking more like a text. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah. Yes, this is the this is the this makes us quake with fear, doesn't yes. it? Yes. Like re- we, you want to retreat to Procopius because you're <laughs> yes. sure that you have Procopius um, yep, pretty yep. close to how he wrote it. Like it's actually – the Byzantine – this is the thing. I think this might be one of the most important things. I'm not sure how often the Byzantines do texts. I think they do an awful lot of this. I mean obviously Psellos writes texts and Photius wrote texts. But also there's also all of this stuff going on that is somebody bundles together. I think Photius is – alleged letter to is somebody said i'm going to put together all of the stuff that the patriarch Phocius said related to these latin councils <laughs> and it's not one letter it's 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 a bunch of things all sort of tangentially related to latins um, and i didn't i didn't make that up my i mean i didn't i didn't notice that entirely myself but it's something Paul speck said a long time ago um but there are all yeah there, there there are a lot of these texts that we see as a text because some manuscript has presented this set of material as one text like peter of sicily's we have one manuscript of peter of sicily so this is this account of you know the ninth century heretics known as the paulicians in asia minor and it's not one text it's it's got you know stuff from a late antique anti-manichaean text and it's got you know, a list of the things the Paulicians believe that are wrong. And then it has this historical account, allegedly, of the Paulicians. And at some point, somebody mashed those things all together and, and called it this text by Peter of Sicily. And then Phocius rewrote it. And yeah, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. was the text by Phocius. And so, yeah, it's, we, 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 we if we can, I, I think it's actually going to be very important when somebody comes up with some of the models by which we can understand what they're doing when they do that. It's very different from what we think of as composition. Yes, uh, it would be very interesting to find some modern equivalent um, 
that uh, you know might actually be more easier to find in the realm of music rather than um, yeah, textuality. Yeah. Um, but if this is not an issue that um, pertains only to esoteric Byzantine texts, uh, take the Epistles of Saint Paul for example, right? Mm. Where you know some of those epistles are mashups. <laughs> they yeah. are they 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 appear as one, but they're like. Th- parts of three different letters that oh, end yeah. and Second, restart uh, yeah. in the middle. Uh, yeah, I, te- I have yeah. to teach New Testament almost every semester. So yes, absolutely. Right. You know, Second Corinthians is at least three letters. Right. Um, and aren't, and, there, aren't there yeah. problems also with the voice that is, so if I remember this, this takes me back a while, but there are also passages in the letters where, where Paul is sort of hypothesizing questions to himself from someone else and then answers that question but mm-hmm. it's difficult to know when he's speaking in his own voice and when he's speaking in the voice of his presumed challenger. And this makes it difficult to, you know, mm. like nail down his position because sometimes the objections are taken as his position and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is it, it's true or but it's more true that 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 used to happen and that pointing that out, um, that the scholars who pointed that out in the late 20th century ended up with a radically different version of Paul, which I think almost all New Testament scholars now accept. Oh, they do? Um, yeah. Oh. Um, that, that he didn't have anything against the law, for example. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. I thought um, it was, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a, I believe it might be called Reinventing Paul. There's a very accessible book by John Gager on this, like that he wrote that yeah. was intended to be, you know, sort of the undergraduate level general level um summary of a lot of this scholarship i am pretty sure it's called reinventing paul but um but yeah uh again like that's the new i mean you you sometimes i I tease my new testament colleague you know the colleague who actually does research on new testaments like hasn't every word been done you know like (laughs) at least every pericope you know every little short sentence has been done and done and done but you know what? She was trained as a classical philosopher, and she's written two books on Paul that just blow the uniqueness of Paul out of the water, right? Like, he's not as... Anyway, um, so you... amazing what you can do when you come at the primary sources from a new... Yeah, from a different uh, perspective, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're almost out of time. I, I, um, I have one other last sort of important question, which mm-hmm. goes to, like, the... Do you ever feel a kind of responsibility weighing on your research, like a moral responsibility, like something might be at stake here for you or someone else um, in the way in which we might imagine, a, you know, a doctor, an engineer, you know, feeling that there actually something meaningful rides on this and I got to get it right or people might get hurt or lose their money or whatever. Do you ever <laughs> do you ever feel that way? Because I personally will confess that I don't. Okay, you, I, see, I, I wondered, um, yeah, as you were saying that question, I was like, no, I, I tend to have the opposite worry, which is that what I'm doing is so incredibly wacky and, you know, unusual. Um, you know, I had somebody ask me recently if, if I'd ever been working on something and had somebody else found out that somebody else was, you know, going to publish it before I was, and I was like, no, what I work on is way too weird. Like, why would anybody else want to do this stuff? So I worry more about you know, not having, you know, that maybe somebody's paying me um, pretty decent money to do what I love. 
to yeah, do my okay. hobby and, and maybe I'm not very useful. But no, I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't think I've ever thought about um, why. Has somebody asked you that? You said you don't feel that way either. Well, so Does this come I, up with someone. So you mentioned the word love and, and that's exactly right. I mean, I love what I do. And I think there's a built in responsibility, say, toward the truth, toward getting it right, right in in doing the thing sure. that I love. Yeah. Um, in the sense that, let's say, if there were an omniscient, impartial um, <laughs> judge of my scholarship, that I would want, you know, the verdict to be a positive one. Like I right. got something, you know, I did I did it well. I, I, I don't know about yeah. getting it right because, yeah, I'm not that optimistic about our real abilities. And <laughs> but that I did that I did a good, a good job toward that goal. Right. Right. But it, it's a rather self-contained like it's a personal thing. It's not like I feel um, that my work may, you know, start riots or under you know mm. cause diplomatic incidents or because pe we have colleagues who work in areas where that does happen i do, i know I'm, right i mean you know i i have an islamist colleague who you know i mean he and he you know i mean he works on he works on rumi for goodness sake you know he works on a, a medieval yeah. persian poet but he is constantly asked to talk about you know violence or did they really find a fragment of the Quran or you know in in Manchester a couple of years ago you know and th th they aren't the things he works on and he's not particularly interested you know but but yeah um yeah we don't have that thank goodness yeah no I feel very fortunate that in Byzantine studies at least uh there might be some interests that have a stake in what, what we say, but I don't think that we can destabilize them that much that they care, you know, that much. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I feel relatively um, safe in being irresponsible. Um, <laughs> no, by, by which I mean, like, experimental even. Like, it's, yeah. Okay. So... Because I know that this is not the case. The closer you get to modern times, the more there is this kind of weight of responsibility and you get tangled up in. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, I still think that we need to have tenure. Sure. No, right? Because yeah, no, I agree. there's almost nothing that we can write about, I feel sometimes, that there isn't some group that if they knew that they could get us fired for saying the thing that they don't want to hear that they would lobby our deans and our universities and, I don't know, say, you know, we won't donate money, we'll boycott your university if you don't fire that guy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, like a Ronan Kirillarius or Slavs in Greece or whatever. You, you never know what will set off some rich donor. No, and, I'm, you know, and I teach New Testament every exactly. semester. I, yeah, yeah. you know, there, there are students, you know, every semester who know I'm the Antichrist by day three of the class. And <laughs> thankfully, half of those stop. Half of those just drop the class. Um, but, you know, and there, that is also in teaching. Sometimes I have felt that responsibility. Like I had a student in New Testament one year who was, um, you know, really unstable at that point. She was a young woman who had grown up in a Bible church. Her grandmother who had raised her was dying. It was, she was very, very, I felt like telling her, you should not take this class right now. You, you don't need this. You don't need me challenging your faith twice a week. Um, go away and come back in two years or something. You know, 
Yeah. It doesn't, you know, it isn't like I'm out to destroy their faith, but there are some students for whom it is just like it's not they're not old enough yet or somehow, you know, to to handle. But yeah, that's different from my scholars. I mean, mostly I feel like um you know, I've had a couple times that I've published things that I've thought to myself, I hope this doesn't offend so and so because I do have some some good, you know, colleague friends who are devout Orthodox people, and and I'm not out to wreck that. I mean, I'm not out to say that's all nonsense. And sure, but it's never happened. In fact, those people who are you know good Orthodox colleague friends, they, yeah. they understand what I'm doing. You know, they're scholars too. They understand what I'm doing, even if they don't agree with it. So. Sure. Yeah. Fortunately, I mean, I don't really deal with those kinds of. I'm like you know, Byzantine political sphere and ethnic identities. Like nobody cares <laughs> enough oh, about that. I- I won't tell you, but I know somebody who was deeply offended by the Psellos book. Uh, the, the from nineteen ninety nine. Very first, yeah, your your very first book. Okay, I was a, I was a second year grad student. Uh yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, I, offended. Wait, no, no, like, it was well offended in this. Well, not offended, but just oh, it's total nonsense that he could have really questioned Christianity. He was, you know, it was one of the people who basically thought yeah. there there can't be somebody who thinks completely outside the box of his sure. culture. Yeah. Um, and and I think it was specifically because this person was Orthodox. And, and so, you know, suggesting that some East Roman in the 11th century could have thought outside the box of Orthodoxy was. Sure. But I mean, the saints lives are have constant references to people who whatever. I, yeah. I don't, no, no, I know. I mean, it, and it, like I, I think this was more this person's problem than any kind of problem. It was definitely this person's problem. It yeah. was not a problem work but it you know there is this um you know there are but yeah it's it's most scholars who work on religion most you know religious scholars who work on religion and you know there are some amazing ones you know andrew louth is you know oh yes yeah uh, you know amazing those assumptionist fathers i was talking about who did all those additions um they're used to it they know that that they're in one particular epistemological position as a result of being people of faith, and they know that other scholars aren't, and it, it just isn't an issue because yeah. they're they're thinking that way. But but once in a while, yeah. I, I also wanted to stress, you know, what you said is exactly right. So teaching is a different matter for me. So when when I was talking about being irresponsibly experimental, no, in no, no, I, I, no, I'm sure, I'm sure, yeah, not in teaching. In teaching, I, I I'm very careful that. And, and in our days, this is especially a problem that, I mean, I don't teach New Testament or much of religion in that way, but um, the Middle Ages, you know, I don't want to say have been become sort of politi- political these days because no, they've always yeah. been, but it's important that none of the students in the class, I think, should feel that it's their Middle Ages. Yeah. Like, it's either all or none, and it's easier none. Um, so I make a point that any civilization is just presented as not the version of Islam or orthodoxy that you're used to. Um, so you've got to wrap your mind yeah. around this totally different culture. Don't assume that you know it because you went to X church or mosque or synagogue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And here's a synagogue with a bunch of images in them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love to do that stuff. Here's, yeah, a, yeah. here's an Islamic manuscript with lots and lots of pictures. Okay, Tia, this was wonderful. I hope our audience enjoys it as much as I do. Oh, um, I hope so too. It's great, you know.
We never get enough time at the Byzantine Studies Conference face to face. So right. Well, yeah, yeah. No, we should. Well, not this year, not obviously. Yeah. Oh, not this year. <laughs> okay. All right. So we'll talk again when your book is out. All right. Thanks. All right. Thank you, too. Bye.